Welcome to What's Next, the podcast that delves into the exhilarating world of nonlinear careers and the art of successful pivots. Join your host, Tamira Lechner, as she explores the diverse pathways of entrepreneurial spirits who thrive while working and playing across multiple disciplines. Whether you're firmly established in your career, contemplating a change, or simply seeking inspiration, these conversations with fascinating people will ignite your curiosity and inform your own journey. Tune in to discover how mindset and action plus your own secret sauce can lead to extraordinary personal and professional growth, no matter where life takes you. I'm your host, Tamara Lechner, and I'm here for the fifth time with my guest, Eric Fraser. Now, we're not five consecutive because we just had a holiday, Christmas and New Year's. So I thought, Eric, maybe we'd start by talking about New Year, new beginnings, new resolutions. Are you a I resolve kind of guy? Uh, I'm not so much a strict uh, New Year's resolution kind of person, but I do tend to have plans for years and quarters and months. Um, so, yeah, I have a plan for this year. I mean, by the middle of the year, um, we have some plans for where we want the business to be. I personally want to have reached my goal, which I set when I started this pivot, which is to be... Uh, you know, at least 10x more knowledgeable about AI than I was when I started studying it. Um, and I think I should be able to reach that. I feel and, like you've uh, probably already reached that, my friend. That, that's because I started with so little knowledge that I was 10xing <laughs> a very small amount. So yeah, it would have been 10X more interesting. 10x is 10x. To, yeah. Um, it would have been more interesting to get like 30 days in, get a base of knowledge and see if I could 10x that. So mm. I'm actually trying to really do that. Um is rather than 10x a tiny amount, 10x a base amount. Um, so, And I think I should be able to do that by the end of June. I have no doubt that you will be able to. Well, my, I'm like you that I don't really do a resolution because I hope to be pivoting and changing and going for what I want very regularly. But I also love clear wordsmithing. And so I brought mine down to five clear words that I'm going to focus on that are peace, joy, abundance, novelty, and connection. Those are what I'm continuing to work toward and um, build for 2024. That's great. Yeah, I like that. Well, thank you. So let's check in to start with. Um, Given that it was holiday time, were you cramming your 10x or were you taking a little time for yourself? No, I was mostly taking time for myself. Um, you know, I used it as a time for reflecting and um, just calmly clarifying for myself, um, you know, how does this pivot make me feel? Am I on the right path? Do I need to change direction? Um, what am I learning about myself and my business partner and our business? Uh, so I, I got a couple of deliverables done, but mostly it was about reflecting and then also just being present um, in my personal life as well with friends and family. I love that. So can I loop back then to the, how do I feel? Did you come up with a word an emotion? How do you feel about what you're doing? Uh, excited. I feel excited about the pivot that, um, I decided to make. And, uh, I feel excited even about the uncertain parts. In fact, maybe even because of the uncertain parts, um, you know, the field that I pivoted into, which is AI, is moving and changing so rapidly that uh, I don't really know where, you know, quote unquote, the market will be in six months. Um, I was actually just considering, you know, a worst case scenario might be that there's a huge backlash against AI and people who are seen to be pro-AI might actually be villainized and, um, you know, thought to be the reason that everyone else is losing their job. So I've wondered about that same thing because I certainly bump up against a lot of people who are predicting Armageddon, not Utopia, mm. and they think it's going to take all the jobs and stop people from thinking deeply. And, and again, you can spiral it down or you can spiral it up. But I think in some scenarios, certainly I do feel like I'm defending uh, the fact that I'm so excited and enthusiastic about the technology. And as you said, in our, I think in our first episode, this is like the introduction of fire. This is Mm. a whole game changer for humans. Yeah. And 
I think people who see us being excited about it, I think it actually amps up their fear instead of helping to dissuade it in any way. Yeah, I was trying to visualize how it must feel to some people who do legitimately fear the loss of their job or some of their income or all of their income. And it's, it's probably like being in uh, you know, a village next to a very big forest and you're starting to hear very strange new noises from the forest. You have no idea what is making those noises, but they are getting closer and they're big noises. So without knowing what that is, I mean, you don't know if it's a big threat. You don't know if it's wonderful. And so I think it's human nature to be a little bit afraid and a little bit apprehensive. Um, And then there are some people inside the village saying, oh, I can't wait to see what that big thing from the forest is. And it might feel you know, really upsetting to you to hear people say that when you yourself are feeling pretty scared. That's such a great way to be, first of all, to tell the story about it, because that story helps people to calm and it brings people along. We know that using story, whether it's in sales and marketing or pitching your your startup story is a very effective way to soothe and then have people's brains open up to the learning. So thanks for telling that in that story scenario. I think one of the problems is the story of AI that we hear commonly is often the story that we see in movies um, where we have Arnold Schwarzenegger coming back to kill the inventor of AI or we have the whole dystopian future. I watched the beginning of a series that had an AI mother raising human children and not with great intention. And and so you see (laughs) that people are seeing those. They're not seeing that actually AI has allowed us to have our cars recognize when they're going to hit a child versus a paper bag and that they're actually so smart that they can recognize not all children have two legs and not all children are walking. And they can like, that is a very smart use of AI to be able to identify all those types of human children. Yeah. But we don't see that commonly on TV. We see the dystopian version, which is, I think, yeah. part of our fear problem. I think so. I mean, um, a lot of people equate AI with, you know, the Terminator and Skynet. Um, <laughs> yes. But they forget that, you know, when they travel to Mexico and they don't know any Spanish, they use AI to speak to people in Spanish through their phones. That's AI too. Exactly. Um, so... Or, or when or they use. Cool, have you seen that cool thing on your iPhone that if you take a picture of a dog, yeah, that you can actually ask it what kind of dog it is? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you can also. Everybody yeah. loves that. Right. Or you can go to Tokyo and point your phone at a street sign, and your phone can translate that street sign into English for you, yeah. or a label on a piece of food, or, you know, that's all AI as well. Um, I mean, there is a legitimate justifiable fear that, you know, am I going to lose my job? It will change a lot of jobs. Um, But a lot of the jobs that, a lot of the tasks that will take off people are not people's favorite tasks. Um, You know, I was watching an old piece of footage from Australia where it was basically showing the Australian middle-class life in about 1960. And the job that this guy had was this super repetitive task in an engine factory. Um, and he basically like would take the engine block three feet to the right. He'd grab a piece of machinery. He'd tighten a bolt with a piece of machinery, and then he'd push the block onto the next thing. And he did that eight hours a day with some breaks. That's not such a great work existence. And of course, factory automation took that job. But is that a good or bad thing? Yeah, it's it's so funny that you say that because we had a conversation the other night. I have my mom who's 80, staying with us. And she was telling us that when she was a late teen to early 20s, a really cool job to get was to be the person in the bowling alley who reset the pins after you bowled. And just my son was like, that was a job. And it was really great to see him recognize that was a machine replacing a human job and that actually that was okay (laughs) he never wanted to have the job of resetting the pins and you know what his grandchildren might say something like you did spreadsheets by hand like you actually hit keys on a keyboard to type things into a spreadsheet that's crazy 
because yeah. all of that will be done by AI. Yeah, or getting lost, right? The number of times that, that you get lost driving with the map, I remember the parents trying to refold it after yeah. we had spent hours going off route. Yeah. Uh, people will not understand why why did you get lost? How could you right. have gotten lost? <laughs> right, right, yeah. All right, well, I would love to pivot this a little bit to cool innovations you heard about, because I know that even though you were on break, yeah. you were watching for the new things. And I don't think as many new things were being rolled out, but this allowed us to hear about some of the less loud new things. So what what cool innovations have you seen kind of in the last 14 years? Here's, here's one that really, <clears throat> excuse me, caught my eye. So in a previous episode, we talked about how a French startup had released this lightweight new open language model. So basically it was free. Anyone could download it. And then the catch was, oh, but you need some computing, some fairly serious computing power to run it. And then someone else posted recently, hey, uh, Google has basically decided to give away like enough computing power to run this model for free. So now you can run your own AI model, right, closed off from everyone else, meaning you're not getting infected by anyone else's data. They're not seeing your data. It's completely a personal closed environment, but it's running a fairly powerful AI model. Um, and uh, apparently the computing is being basically donated to you by Google. Why now, do you know, think Google would do that? Because they're trying to upsell you into the next tier. So what, they'll, uh. what they're hoping is you'll start to do harder and harder things and eventually the whatever's available in the free tier won't be enough. And so then you'll say, well, what can I do? I don't necessarily want to move it entirely somewhere else. And Google will pop up and say, oh, well, for another $30 a month, you can have enough computing power. So that's... Good old freemium. Yeah. Yeah. So it's freemium. Yeah. Yeah. But still, I mean, this is... Uh, that caught my eye because it um, it's another marker in the downwards trend of cost and ease with which people can run large language models. So... Um, I was on a call today where someone asked, like, why don't you just make a bot of um, Dr. Lisa Palmer, who's my business partner? And we actually have already done that. Um, uh, but we're just, you know, for various reasons, we just haven't released it to the public yet. Um, one of the things about making a bot of someone and, and making a replica of them and, and training the bot on all of Lisa's research papers and academic writings um, is it does actually need some maintenance. So it's not just like set it once and then forget it forever. You actually want to constantly tune it and monitor it and make sure it's not starting to say silly things. So that's human effort. And right now it also means technical expertise, but both the technical expertise required and the human effort required is trending down. So in six months time, it might be quite easy for you to put all of your, you know, uh, writings and um, research and anything that's written down, feed it all into a bot and basically have a Tamara bot that is, you know, 85% um, uh, like high fidelity to what you would say to any given question uh, about a specific topic. Well, and I've seen, so Martin Seligman, who's the founding father of positive psychology, one of his uh, protégés in China made a positive psychology Martin Seligman bot and yeah. Martin is supportive of this bot and actually thinks it's pretty accurate he's yeah. written a lot he's he's everywhere so it's very easy for somebody to take what's publicly available yeah. and make make a Marty um, and he's okay with that he's supporting it but I've also seen the Esther Perel bot and Esther did not permission the person the person took transcripts of her podcasts and all of her books and everything that was publicly available and then created his own therapist because he could not get in to have an appointment with Esther. And mm. she is not so sure on it. And I think this mm. is interesting with the bots when you were saying, make sure they don't say something silly. Yeah. Would that be like a hallucination or? That's, it would exactly be a hallucination. Yes. Yeah. Which could feel fun, but not in all contexts, right? I wouldn't mind if I right. said something silly because I'm prone to doing that anyway. <laughs> anyways but yeah so I, I wouldn't I'm, want esther perel to give me silly advice right and you know in the field of ai which is what dr lisa works in you don't want her bot saying something that's not 
factually or technically true um, or just to give bad advice, which she as a human would not give. My brain immediately goes to the what happens when that happens. Can you sue? Do you, you can't sue the, I don't know who you can sue, but I imagine there's all the permutations of you've got Lisa, you've got the person who programmed it, you've got like, like there's just so many layers. And I think that's what our policy people and our legal and ethical people are trying yeah. with, with some success, but not total success to work out. Yeah, I don't know either, but there's a landmark case happening right now, of course, between the New York Times and OpenAI. Um, Will you explain York... that to our audience who may have not heard about that? Sure. Yeah. So very simply, um, OpenAI trained ChatGPT using a bunch of um, journalism that was written by the New York Times. Um, now, they say they obtained it legally. They didn't steal it from anywhere. It was either paid for. You know, just like I can pay for New York Times journalism if I want to. They said, well, that's what we did. We just paid for the journalism. We got the content and we fed it into our training model. What's wrong with that? Um, and so the New York Times is basically uh, saying, no, we we never gave you permission to train a big, large language model on our journalism. I mean, if you want to read it as a human, that's fine. Knock yourself out. But we didn't say you could train a large language model in it. And they're also specifically saying that some of the output from the large language model is just too similar to what was actually written in the New York Times journalistic articles, which, by the way, surprises me a lot because that's just not that's not really how LLMs work. They do not cut and paste. They generate sentences word by word using probabilistic math. So the chance of, you know, a New York Times sentence is these seven words and then those seven words turn up as the output of something trained on the New York Times, that's actually quite low. That's not likely at all. It seems very unlikely. And for the listeners in our audience, Eric, on another call that he and I had, he explained beautifully what he means by that. And so I'm going to post that on LinkedIn so that the audience can understand just how difficult it would be to actually come up with that exact same sentence, given the way math creates sentences and paragraphs it, it just seems yeah like the chances of that happening would be so, yeah. so small yeah so it's it's going to be a really interesting case to watch because it will expose some technical facts um, like if it's true i mean i assume that the new york times being as well resourced as they are they've probably built a very strong case um, otherwise they would never have bothered with this and so if they say that some of the output is scarily similar to what they wrote in the first place, then I, I want to see that. I want to see what happened and why did that happen? And that's going to have to come out in discovery and, and in the case. So it will be Eric, super interesting. Reminds me of Ed Sheeran being accused of ripping off music of other yeah. artists. And, and then yeah. it goes to, okay, there's, there's phrases that sound enough alike. Yeah. that they remind us of one another. And right. I, I think the New York Times or the Atlantic or any of the large news sources that repeat the same kind of information, they do have almost a cadence that is sure. predictable. So I could see how that could possibly be true. Um, yeah. But I can't imagine that it would be a cut and paste thing. So it will be really yeah. interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. And the Ed Sheeran um, case is actually a pretty good analogy. I mean, at what point is it copying versus just being um, influenced by, even on a subconscious level, I mean, screenwriters, for example, are influenced by classic screenplays, whether they know it or not. You know, when you're writing a screenplay yourself, your brain is just subconsciously referencing everything you've been trained on as a screenwriter. And that might include scripts that you've read classic scripts or classic films that you've watched over and over again now are you copying is that copyright infringement i mean it's um it's not a clean line between you know this is wrong and this is right it's such a gray zone right i mean is west side story romeo and juliet <laughs> yeah. when you're looking at those um i think and i am I'm, I'm not gonna quote this study properly but there was a study looking at stories and i think they came down to maybe 53 stories yeah classics were just repeated yeah. um and 
I imagine the same would be true with sentence structure because sentences are a certain length and they contain certain types of words and yeah. news wants to grab your attention. And so they're going right. to place their words strategically in a certain order. It's going to happen that things are going to sound the same. And I, I think as humans, I remember when I was writing for Deepak Chopra, I was told to write a very certain way that didn't sound yeah. like Samara. It sounded like the Chopra center. Yeah. And so as humans, we're attuned to doing that. We kind of yeah. morph ourselves for the environment we're in. Why wouldn't a large language model also be capable of doing that? Especially if it's asked specifically to do that, because you can write in your prompt, please write me a summary of the events in Gaza in the style of a New York Times article. So if it happens to write sentences that are eerily similar to something the New York Times actually published... Now, is that, you know, allowed, not allowed? I mean, the prompting person, you know, can request a particular style. So should OpenAI in that case say, no, I'm sorry, we're not allowed to copy styles? Well, and I think that'll be, it'll be very interesting because I think this comes back to if you're a public persona or if you are something like the New York Times that is designed for the public to read. I I know that there's different rules around someone who is making their li living publicly, uh, like a Kardashian or um, yeah. any of the stars, that there's different rules around them. And so when we look at Grimes, the singer who has said, anybody can use my voice to make music and I get 50%, I think that's a really cool and open-minded yeah. way to move forward but there's so many artists doing the exact opposite that they're really constricting and right. looking for no you can't use even the tone of my voice in the back of, of your song right. anymore and i'll sue you and i'm all for opening rather than constricting yeah. but again i think it comes back to that fear that yeah we, we talked about at the beginning that when someone is operating with a mindset of scarcity and a mindset of fear this is only going to send yeah. off all kinds of warning signals. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Such an interesting time. Any other innovations? So that was one, um, the Google. Anything else you saw that you, you thought I, was cool? Yeah, I noticed that there's like these huge leaps forward being made in an area that I don't watch myself particularly carefully, but at image and video generation. Um, the only reason I don't watch those areas that much is because they're less relevant in the specific domain area that I've chosen to focus on, which is sales and marketing. Now, marketing, you could argue, you know, a lot of creative marketing is image and video generation, um, but that's a branch of, you know, of AI that I'm just not that expert in. But I have noticed that the pace of improvement in that area is is really astounding. So over the six months, you know, people are posting before and after like, this is, uh, you know, a picture of a dog running through a field, you know, generated in like July. And this is a picture, same prompt um, generated in December. And they're massively, massively different. And the December one is way better. I think that is true. And I certainly notice a lack of creativity from some of the people out there generating. So I, I think I saw this morning because I have not been on LinkedIn very much over the break. And I, I saw about 12 almost identical posts of people saying, look what generative AI can do. I can sit yeah. on LinkedIn and be a cartoon. Isn't this awesome? And it is awesome. Yeah. But it's no longer original. <laughs> and so I yeah. think having those original ideas uh, is, is going to become even more of a desirable skill yeah. set because the first person who thought of that it was great but it's very repeatable now yeah i think in the area of art too i mean if you really are concerned especially as an artist a visual artist of being replaced um i think ai generated images i'm not going to call them art actually i'm just going to call them ai generated images and footage my son what? would love that you said that because he's an artist and he's one of the ones saying this is not art yeah, I, I don't think it is either because I think that art comes from the soul and AI images and footage come from mathematics. Um, and so 
I, I think there's going to be a flushing out of what is art exactly. And AI might actually help us recognize what art really is because it'll replace bad art pretty easily. Um, but really good art done by really good artists, I'm not sure that it's going to have the same effect on a viewer because you're, you know, a really piece of good art, um, it communicates something from the maker of the art to the viewer or the consumer of the art in a way that, a you know, one soul can tell another soul. And the images and the footage that AI makes are all generated from mathematical equations that assign numbers to pixels in a bunch of training data, which are images and other footage. And then it just uses math to create different patterns of pixels. And it's just getting really, really good at pattern recognition. But that's not a soul communicating to a soul. Yeah, I think it is going to open up some big discussions. And and again, if somebody likes a Hallmark movie, awesome. AI can yeah. write us a Hallmark movie, but it's not going to write Chariots of Fire. It's not going to exactly. write. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It won't write Chariots of Fire. Exactly. Um, there was another thing that I did recently where I asked it to make um, an orange and red painting style image in the style of Rothko. Mm. And um, it said, no, sorry, can't do that. That's copying Rothko. So not doing it. Um, so then I said, okay, just make me like a blobby orange and red impressionist painting. And so it did, and it looked nothing like a Rothko. Um, I thought you were going to say it looked like a Rothko. <laughs> it, it didn't. I was, I was kind of curious to see how close it was going to get. Um, and then I asked it to make a plain air style, like painting style image of a particular scene. And this is something that I can compare to human art because I've, I've seen a lot of human art of this particular scene in the plain air style. And again, yeah. it wasn't bad. I mean, it was like a, I don't know, like a five out of 10 quality painting. Um, but I don't think really good painters need to, need to be afraid of being replaced by AI. I don't think really good writers need to be afraid of being replaced by AI. I agree. I agree. Um, and it will be interesting to see how art evolves. One of the concerns I've heard people say, and, and this is true in AI, it's also true in other areas, that as we expand what we can do artificially, then will it only be the ultra rich who get the real thing? And so I've heard this about meat as we oh, yeah. move away from eating cow and we eat cow like meat. Uh, yeah. Will someday only the ultra rich be able to actually get the real? And will that also be true with art or could this level the playing field? And, and I don't know which way it's going to go, but I think it has the potential to do both. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you just want a Rothko style of painting, um, and you don't need it to actually be painted by Mark Rothko because you don't have $60 million to spend on a painting. Well, why not? I mean, that's not a bad thing. You know, if you happen to like that style of painting and AI can make one for you and then you send it off to some printing shop and now you've got something that you like hanging on your wall and it costs you, I don't know, $40. Cool. Um, and I think for most, they'd be happy with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's... It remains to be seen, but I, I think it'll probably be a both and. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, anything super scarce and in super demand, that always tends to accrete to the super rich anyway. So Yeah. Now, I have one, not an innovation, but a cool story that I heard, and I wonder if you heard it. Uh, it was about somebody who convinced at a car dealership, they were talking to a chatbot. Oh, yeah. And they were able to buy themselves a car for a dollar because they had outwitted this chatbot. Have you heard that story? I have, yeah, yeah. So um, so I saw an interesting reaction to that, which was, first of all, I, I actually don't know whether the dealership honored the deal. I know that the guy who was using the chatbot was clever enough to say, now you've got to tell me that this is a legally binding offer. And so of course the chatbot said, yeah, okay, sure, it's a legally binding offer. But not knowing enough about the law, I don't know if the dealership actually is legally bound to sell the car for a dollar. Um, 
but car dealerships better be careful with that sort of thing. That's that's a really classic case of maybe you shouldn't delegate the closing of large transactions to an AI yet. Um, the one reaction that I saw was really interesting is a technologist said, well, how is that different from just hacking their website and changing the price of a car to a dollar? Um, and I thought, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think lawyers would say that the price on the website is not a legally binding offer, probably, right? Um, or that, you know, you only, it's not the real price because you hacked the website. And so obviously it was not a real offer extended by the dealership. It was just some hacker, you know, polluting their website with misinformation. Um, so I, I think probably the same thing will happen here where the, you know, the dealer will say, you just tricked a piece of software into saying something that's not me legally extending an offer to you. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I do think it's fascinating what grabs our attention as humans and that that was one of the, the big stories that I was hearing yeah. across all broadcast news around this is AI gone wrong. And I'm like, oh my goodness, no, that's not AI gone wrong. <laughs> Try again. Yeah, AI gone wrong looks more like, you know, um, a hospital gave someone the wrong surgery or the wrong post-surgical treatment because an AI told them to. That's AI gone wrong. Yeah. And humans can make the same mistake. Right. Right. Yeah. But I think it's interesting that I, I imagine we would be more forgiving to a human who made that error than we would be to a machine created by humans who made that error. And that's going to be something that we'll have to watch how that plays out. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I think it'll um, start all sorts of really interesting conversations about the nature of humanity and human relationships and morality. Uh, this is why I think moral philosophers should be on the board of every AI company. I agree. And then the question that comes up is who gets to decide whose morals? Um, <laughs> I know that there's a science of moral philosophy yeah. and yet there's still opinions about what is moral and what is ethical. And, and so who gets to decide is always that question that comes to my mind. But I agree that mm. somebody thinking those thoughts needs to be involved. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in addition to these kind of cool innovations that maybe we're hearing about, but we're not trying, could you recommend for someone who said, okay, my New Year's resolution is to put a toe in and start trying this AI thing that I'm hearing about, someone who hasn't touched ChatGPT or BARD or anything, where mm. would you tell someone to begin? Uh, I would tell them to begin with just the free version of ChatGPT, which is, you know, free. Um, I would also tell them to try Bing Chat and Pi and Po. Um, and just start with really, really simple things like what's something that you would have, um, if you did it through Googling it, it would take you 30 minutes. And then just try telling the chatbot to Google it for you, essentially. That's what it should feel like. Yeah. Is, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, let's say you're a small business in San Francisco, which famously has tons and tons of regulations for small businesses. And you want to know, like, um, what are all of the new bylaws in the city of San Francisco that will affect my small business um, as, uh, you know, maybe I give bike tours around San Francisco or something. Um, what new bylaws are there? You know, you can ask that of any of those large language models and they'll just summarize it for you. That's something that if you Google it, I mean, it, it could take you a while to get all the answer. It could absolutely it. take you a while to sort, especially through government websites. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's a great example. So picking yeah. those things that, yeah, you can do, but Google isn't a clean and quick way. It's right. you're still doing a lot of human sorting. So it takes right. out a layer of that. That's a great place exactly. to begin. And, and you can tell the LM something like, I run a food cart or I run bike tours and the LLM, the large language model, will be smart enough to say, okay, well, 40% of these laws don't apply to you. These 60% mm. do. So again, just a, as a time-saving device. And what I find is that once people 
experience one or two use cases, they start thinking, oh, wait a minute, can it do this? Can it do that? And then they're off and running. Yeah. And that's where I keep reminding people, you're off and running. But I've noticed that people have this mindset that it's a computer, so it's right. And they need to have that constant reminder, check your work, because it's not yeah. always right. So yeah. Google's not always right either. Right. But it doesn't make stuff up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the <clears throat> one of the key things about LLMs is they can make up some very weird things. Which again, coming back, I, I love weird things. I just don't love them when I'm expecting true things. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm. I want to put my thinking cap back to you and your partnership with uh, Dr. Lisa Palmer, and I'm wondering if you've given some thought to a. This is like the ideal client that I would love. Like if I'm doing everything right and we're doing everything right as a team, we're going to work with this person group by the end of the year. Have you got something yeah. in mind that would fit that? Yeah, we've got a persona in mind. Um, you know, there's a lot of names, but I mean, the persona that these names would fit is they're the chief revenue officer of a fairly large company. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry. And um, the sales organization probably has several hundred individual sellers in it and has at least two layers of management. So direct first line sales managers and sales directors or VPs of sales between them and the CRO. Um, <clears throat> I think that would be the ideal client for us. And something about them that would make them ideal is that they have the motivation and the budget to increase the use of AI, but they don't know exactly how should they do it for the greatest effect. So they would come to us with a problem like, um, look, I, I know that somehow I should be using AI to solve problems in sales. Here are my two biggest problems right now is 50% of my sales come from the top 15% of sellers. Um, and I don't like that. I would, I would like it to be much more evenly distributed. Uh, and my win rates in my most um, important market segment are actually going down, not up. So they're my two biggest problems. If I can fix those problems, I'm golden. Um, they would come to us with sales problems like that, and we would show them this is how AI can help you with that specific problem. So if they don't say anything about forecasting, we are not going to say anything about forecasting either. right? We're not going to say, did you know that AI can generate much better sales forecasts? No, nope. if they don't tell us that there's a problem, we're not going to mention it. We're just going to go to the specific problems that they bring to us. Okay, and can I ask why that is? Why would we not mention the other ones? Yeah. Because it becomes overwhelming. Um, first of all, we have to trust our buyer that he or she will know their problems well enough to remember that, oh, that's right, I have this forecasting problem as well, right? I mean, generally, you know, sales leaders in particular, they're pretty good on knowing what their problems are. So if they don't mention that it's a problem, it just probably isn't a problem. Um, in their mind. And it's that their money. It's it's their budget that they're going to spend. So they get to, to decide, you know, where do I spend this money? What problems am I willing to buy my way out of? Um, so if they mention one thing, we're going to go after that one thing. If they mention four things, we're going to go after four things. If they mention 20, we're probably going to ask them to nominate three or four. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and what I heard you say, because in my experience, and it's again, not in sales and marketing, I often have clients show up to me and they tell me their problem and they have it wrong. And so I work a lot with large organizations and, and changing culture and, and helping leaders to optimize peak performance. And they will come with me saying, I have a real problem. My people are not innovative. They're not brave. And actually, when we do a little look, their problem isn't innovation and bravery. Their problem is psychological safety that the people don't feel Ah, like they yeah. can ask <clears throat> right. the, the questions or point out the problems because there's no psychological safety on the team. And so I think sales and marketing is different than my experience yeah. where your people are showing up knowing what their problems are. My people are often showing up thinking they know the problems, but what they know is the result of the problem, not the problem. Okay. That's a really good distinction because sometimes you will get sales leaders say something like, the bottom 50% of my salespeople are lazy. Now that may be belief, they might believe that. Yeah. Whether that's true or not, 
<clears throat> don't know. But most of the time they talk in terms of metrics. They talk in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, we missed, you know, quota attainment for the bottom 50% of reps again. I don't want that anymore. Um, or, you know, there's too much of a skew. It looks like this. Or, uh, you know, um, market share or wallet share in strategic accounts is trending down. I mean, these are metrics that they yes. want to change. Um, occasionally, yeah, they'll say something like, you know, my sellers are too lazy or they're not creative enough. We would look for a metric that says, tell us how that shows up in these numbers and let's see if we can get the numbers to change. Um, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, in the world of organizational psychology and culture, I mean, there's definitely um, a need to re-clarify the problem. Well, and I do think that sales have been using their data well for a long time. Organizational psychology and well-being data in a workplace are fairly new. Um, they're also fairly frequently misread uh, right. and misinterpreted. So I think sales and marketing, uh, given that that's your sweet spot and the way they've been measuring their metrics because their metrics, they can see the direct line yeah. between what a salesperson does and the bottom line. Um, it's, it's a straight line. Yeah, Whereas yeah. the human play inside of the HR of an organization, it's never a direct line. Um, yeah. it's, it's not easy to see. I mean, what we've heard about quiet quitting, we've heard about, but drawing a straight line between that affected your bottom line by this much is really hard to do because there's so many layers around, well, maybe they quit because of diversity, equity, inclusion, and maybe yeah. they quit because your office stinks and mate, like we don't know yeah. all, the other, yeah. <laughs> all the other things. So Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. True. Interesting. Anything else that, um, before we dive into 2024 and, and again, I know you're going to hit the ground running that you want to tee up that, okay, this is, this is what we're going to talk about next week. This is where we're going from here. I, it occurred to me today on another call that, um, whether you're trying to do a career pivot or not, 2024 may push you into some kind of pivot anyway, because yeah. um, the, a lot of organizations are actually gearing up to um, invest in AI in 2024. That will change people's job roles. It will actually result in some jobs going from a human to an AI. It'll also result in some brand new jobs being created and there'll be a massive shortage of people for a while because there won't be in it as many people in those roles. So um, some pivots might happen whether you're looking for them or not, um, which means the whole art or discipline of career pivoting might become pretty important in 2024. I couldn't agree more. And I have, I was on a call today talking about the pivot by choice and the pivot by chance. Yeah. And that chance is the layoff or the job disappearing or yeah. whatever it is um, that your whole industry disappears because technology has taken over and yeah. that's a different kind of pivot. And it will be interesting. I'm going to put some thought to this before we speak next time to see if I can identify where it's easier or more challenging based on whether the pivot was your choice or not, but also that mindset of opportunity. There's so many people who can get knocked down and get up again. And that was awesome. Let's now, what can I learn now? What can I learn? And that's, that's a mindset tuning thing that I think um, I'm very aware of my work in coaching that we can handle VUCA volatile, uncertain, chaotic times in an area or two of our life. But if we're going through a career pivot and we've just had a baby and we just got divorced and Mm -hmm. our health is low, all of a sudden that pivot feels really, really hard. And so being able to recognize and be okay with where you are that I don't really want to pivot, but I have no choice and, and giving yourself some compassion and knowing that common humanity, this is going on in a lot of places. You're not alone. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be a real resilience factor, I think. Yeah, I would also counsel any leader who's thinking, oh, cool, I can get rid of 200 people and replace them with an AI. 
I would just counsel them to be really careful about what they're handing to the AI. Like think of that car dealership who said, oh, I'll just have an AI sell my cars. Now, if they end up being bound, you know, to sell cars for a dollar because people trick them, that's not a very good outcome. Maybe you shouldn't have gotten rid of the human salespeople. Um, so that's an extreme example, but there are just like less edgy cases where people might get pushed out by an AI and then their employer might realize, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Um, well, and so, I think employers are going to have to really be intentional about how they do it. There are going yeah. to be instances where this does need to happen. But one thing I always counsel leaders to consider is rebuilding trust is harder than building trust. And so if yeah. you don't manage those layoffs really well, it can break your organization. Right, right, exactly. And I would also... Um, I'd encourage leaders also to think about AI as more than just a people replacement strategy. So it's not just something that can knock off a few hundred thousand dollars of, of payroll. It's something where you could make yourself a new product or a new offering for your market. You could expand your market. You could meet an unmet need in your existing market all using AI. So it would be like... Um, you know, if you were a, a medical research lab, right, and you had the chance to use AI to know when to turn the lights off in the lab or not, depending on whether anyone was in the lab, you could use AI for that. I mean, you don't need AI, but you could, right? Or you could use AI to synthesize a new drug that cures some yet uncurable disease. Now, which one would you rather do? Would you rather save $20 in electricity a month or would you rather make a new drug that gets you a billion dollars a year in revenue? I mean, that's... Yeah, you know, those think, leverage points are key that I think we're going to need to think beyond just productivity. Yeah, exactly. Productivity. Yeah. 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 And I'm, again, with the lights, right? Yeah, that's something AI can do, but so can other technologies that already exist. If you actually take the money you would spend on that to do something that is for the good of your right. team. Think of the enhancing yeah. to I mean, when, when your team feels valued because you've done something that helps them do their job better, Yeah, they're going to be grateful. And that is an upward spiral versus, okay, yeah, the lights went off and I didn't have to touch it. So really yeah. thinking about the human piece as you're yeah, absolutely. playing with human AI. Absolutely. Also remember that when you, let's say you've got a thousand people in your company, you replace 200 of them with AI, that has an effect on the 800 that you didn't fire. So you just, exactly. you just created a very big experience for them, which drives their beliefs about the company, which drives how they behave, which drives your business outcomes. And so you want to be really aware of the experience you're creating overall. I think leaders and not all leaders that like you can't put everybody in a bucket, but I know that I've certainly coached quite a few leaders um, over COVID and most of them under anticipated how negative the people who were left. Yeah. Felt. Uh, yeah. They all thought these people are going to be grateful to be around. They're going to feel valued. They're going to feel respected. And actually these people felt angry that you had let go of their friends, their teammates, mm -hmm. their mentors, yeah. And there was a lot of trust to rebuild. That's what I was saying before, that rebuilding trust is harder. So yeah. no, you're not ending up actually in the spot that you think you're going to unless you've done a really good job of exactly. the way that you made these changes. There's also this illusion that um, the people you're letting go, well, that's all they could do anyway. They could only do that one finance job that I had them doing yeah. That may not be true at all. They may be capable of way more than that. Very different things, but you just didn't know that because all you had them doing was this one finance job. Yes, and I think that, again, especially in very large organizations where things are kind of process-driven and people are specialists, not generalists, Yeah, we often don't recognize that, okay, that was my finance guy, but didn't know that he actually could edit videos and was right. brilliant at design yeah. and yeah. never thought to ask him. And right. so it is, I think we're going to, I heard someone the other day say, 
they were kind of getting admonished for blowing their own horn, tooting their own horn, whatever you would say. And they said, this is what you have to do now. And I think especially for some generations, my generation, um, Australian people don't like to toot. We are going to have to get better at saying the things that we know. I, I struggle all the time to be able to succinctly say, what are the things I'm an expert in? And I think we're all going to need to get better at that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a little shift in the culture. Yeah. Yes. And I think it's funny because I, as I think of that shift and I've watched this younger culture of influencers and I don't love the idea of being famous for being famous and yet that's a skill. Um, and so, although I don't love the idea of that, I think the skill to do that is something I could learn from. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember, um, you know, scenes from films in the Great Depression where a whole bunch of unemployed workers would turn up to, you know, a factory or something, and the foreman of the factory would walk out and he'd say, who here knows how to weld? And, you know, 20 hands would go up, you know, and everyone else is like, oh, crap, I don't know how to weld. Now, were those 20 people showing off just by raising their hands, saying, hey, I'm a welder, you know? No, I mean, they're just honestly answering the question. Yeah, I know how to do that. Um, yeah. So... I think in our future work world, um, we'll have to find a way to just put our hand up when we know that the skill is in demand. There'll be some way, I obviously won't be turning up to a factory and putting your hand in the air, but there'll be a way of saying, I know how to do that. Well, and I think this goes back to our last episode um, where you talked about, can somebody who knows how to cook fine Chinese food switch to being a French chef? And, and they're not the same thing, but the skill set certainly could transfer in some way. And I think maybe connecting those kind of dots would be something that a leadership team could use AI for to yeah. imagine what other things would somebody who was doing this, what else would they be good at? And, and that might be an interesting yeah. thing to play with. Yeah. Yeah. There's at least one company doing something very much like that, where they're trying to measure the individual's propensities and skills for oh any job, not just the job they have, but any job. Um, and they originally were applying it in the hiring cycle, but I think they're expanding their thinking to say, why don't we just measure people, whether they work here or not, whether they want to work here, um, and just have a better picture of what people are capable of. That's interesting. All right. Well, I think we've, we've done the gamut today. We've gone from Happy New Year's to planning, um, leadership and, and, and all of the things. So this has been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank so you much as always. Once Thank again, you. for letting us peek into your process and, and, and sharing your journey with me. Um, I can't wait to hear what happens next week. And I hope I want to plant the seed for you to have a chat with Dr. Lisa Palmer and see if we can get her to join us even for a segment. Um, that would be brilliant towards our closing weeks to, to see if we can get that to happen. Sure. That sounds good. Sounds fun. Excellent. Well, thanks everybody for tuning into what's next. And remember the next chapter of your story is all up to you ready to unfold, whether you actively leap toward it or whether the current gently guides you. So as always, stay curious, stay open-minded and be brave. <laughs>